Good morning. How are we doing this morning, everybody? Uh, I'm very, very excited uh, today. Um, 2011, a uh, very long time ago, seems like uh, 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I answered the call to start and plant this church. Uh, and today is very exciting because we now have a place to call um, our own and, and a home. So um, I'm, I'm really, really blessed by the Lord um, to, to see what he's done over the last years of starting this church and planting this church and uh, for that to be uh, kind of come to fruition today for uh, this to be the first Sunday to where uh, this is the building now that we call our home as Gospel Community Church. Uh, we've been traveling through Ruth uh, and so today we'll conclude this book. If you're not familiar uh, with our church or generally what we do, uh, we just travel straight through books of the Bible. We go line by line, verse by verse, uh, and, and just kind of break it down and go straight through books. Uh, so today we'll conclude Ruth. Next week we start Philippians. Um, so just be reading ahead, if you will. We're going to go all the way through Philippians. It'll probably take us about 14 weeks um, after Philippians. We're going to be in Acts like forever. So um, that's a long book. We're going to be in that book for a long time, uh, maybe until Jesus returns. But um, we're going to go through Acts as well, but, but be reading ahead uh, through Philippians. We're excited to get into that book. So as we close um, Ruth today, I, I want to ask this question. It's a question that we've been asking, but what is this book about? I mean, is it just a love story? I mean, it's a beautiful love story. Um, is it just a story about these two women who were taken care of by this guy named Boaz? I mean, what's this story really about? And as we've come back to it time and time again, here's what we've said. This story is about the providential hand of God working in the lives of ordinary people to bring about extraordinary things. That God has worked time and time again in the life of Naomi, in the life of Ruth, in the life of Boaz to, to bring about something glorious, to bring about something beautiful. And today we see the culmination of everything that God had been working to bring together. Um, and so we're going to see that. But also what we've seen along the way, listen, the believer's life and our walk to glory is never a straight line. It's, it's never a straight line. Like, when you become a believer, it's not like, a, you know, your whole life is just a bowl full of cherries all the way until Jesus comes back. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, become a Christian and it's easy sailing, right? Right, that hasn't been my experience at all. As, as a matter of fact, what I've seen is, is that the life of a believer, the life of the godly, people who want to love Jesus and follow Jesus and serve him and, and, and be about his kingdom and be about his gospel proclamation, our lives are never a straight line to glory. As a matter of fact, there are setbacks. There, there are washouts along the road. There's 12 hours where you're stuck in the snow. Anybody? Anybody stuck in the snow? 12? Okay. Yeah, there's 12 hours where you're stuck in the snow on the road to glory. There, there are hairpin turns in the road that, that almost, it's, it feels like you have to go backwards to go forwards on the road to, to glory. And so what we've learned is that, yes, God's providential hand is always working together for our good, but that doesn't mean that it's always easy sailing. It doesn't mean that everything always goes well. It doesn't mean that you're always gonna be wealthy, healthy, happy. It means that... Um, Suffering is going to come. There are going to be trials. There are going to be setbacks. There are going to be washouts in the road. You're going to be stuck on the road in the snow for 12 hours. There are going to be hairpin turns. There's going to be just stuff that happens in your life. But when, when we can't trace God's hand, we can always trust his plan. Um, and, and so if we've seen anything... <laughs> 
Um, all along the road, as we're traveling and walking the Christian life, and when there are setbacks, when the road is washed out, when we're stuck in the snow for 12 hours, there's always road signs along the road to glory that are saying, I'm working it for your good. Keep going, keep going. I'm gonna work it for your good. I'm gonna work it for your good. And the beautiful thing is that Ruth is actually one of those road signs. And it shows us that yes, um, even in our most painful circumstances, even when life seems to be crashing in around us, even when everything around us is blowing up, the wheels have fallen off, the plane has crashed into the side of the mountain, God's still at work. And he's still in control, and he still loves us, and he's still working everything together for our good. If you haven't been with us, let me just kind of recap for you. Um, I'm going to try to do this quickly so that everyone can get caught up. So when we jump into the text, everybody's together um, and on the same page. So the book opens up. And what we see is it's in the time of the judges. This means it was a spiritually bad time for the people of Israel. They're not listening to God. They're not obeying God. They're doing whatever they think is right. And so spiritually, it is deplorable. Also, economically, it's going terrible as well. As other um, armies and other countries are coming in and raiding Israel, stealing their crops, stealing their food, it's not going well. So there's a famine in the land, and we're introduced to this family, and he is led, the family is led by a man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And so what they decide to do is to leave the land of Bethlehem and travel into the land of Moab to try to save their family. I mean, things aren't going well, there's no food to eat, and so they make what is seemingly a good decision to move from there, from Bethlehem, to go into Moab to try to save their family. But we know that that was a terrible plan because it goes exactly against what God had told them to do, which was to stay in Bethlehem. And instead, they go into the land of Moab uh, where nobody there worships Yahweh God. They actually worship a demonic God named Chemosh. Um, and so there's no believers anywhere, there's no synagogues anywhere, so they can't have Christian friends. They can't have Christian relationships. Um, their sons can't marry Christian women. They can't go to the synagogue and worship God. Uh, and so it goes badly. And they have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they end up marrying two Moabite women. And then things get even worse because Elimelech dies. The, the leader of the family who had tried to lead his family to, to salvation, he actually dies. The plan backfires. And then right after that, Malon dies and Kilion dies. Everybody dies. And all that's left is Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. So the good thing is God uh, goes back to and he, he visits his people is what the word says. He visits his people in Bethlehem. And so what do they do? Well, they travel back to Bethlehem. And somewhere along the way, Naomi realizes that she has nothing to offer her two daughters-in-law. And so she says, you know what? You guys go back to Moab. All I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to my country and I'm going to, I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of my relatives to feed me and to clothe me and to house me. What you guys need to do is just go back to your country. Go back to your gods. Um, so Orpah does. She goes back to Moab and goes back to her gods, but Ruth makes Naomi a promise. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so she dedicates her life to her. She, she makes a promise to her, but it's also a faith proclamation of her saying, you know what? I'm not gonna worship those Moabite gods anymore. I'm gonna worship the one true God, Yahweh. So they travel back, but these two women find themselves in a really terrible situation. They're broke, um, one's a widow, both of them are widows, and they've got no place to go and, and nothing to eat. 
So what Ruth does is she goes and finds a field to glean in. Now, what God had done with his people is he had set up a system and told them not to glean all the way to the edges of their fields so that people in need could come and get grain and get something to eat. And this was a way that God had, a system that God had set up to serve his people. And so Ruth goes to a field because they're starving, they're hungry, and she begins to glean. And it just so happened that it was the field of Boaz. You guys remember Boaz, right? The rich guy, the single guy, the guy who loves Jesus, the guy who is actually in the line to be the kinsman redeemer um, of Ruth. Oh, man, what great luck, right? So right there, we begin to see that when things are going terrible, I mean, Elimelech died, Malon died, Kilion died, no food, nothing to eat. She just so happens to find the right field with the right guy who's rich, single, loves Jesus, and is a kinsman redeemer of hers. So they meet. We saw them have their first date. It was awesome. They shared uh, some roasted grain, and he's sitting next to her, and he makes sure that she's taken care of, and he goes out of his way to provide for her, to protect her, to offer her community, uh, make sure that she's safe. Boaz is a manly man protecting this woman, you know, kind of, you know, kind of maybe he's, you know, making a pass at her, we're not real sure, but, but we think he likes her and she likes him and, and the story's going really, really good and then chapter three comes and the harvest is over and nothing happened. We saw the first day, we saw him meet, we saw love was in the air and, and everything was going great, but then the harvest is over which means Ruth is no longer gonna be working for Boaz and now they're not gonna have any reason to see each other. So what are we gonna do now? Well, the brilliant mother-in-law comes up with what we said was a strategically risky plan. So she goes to Boaz um, at night um, and lays down at his feet and um, proposes that he propose. Okay? She doesn't propose, but she proposes that he propose, and he does. But there was one last setback that we left off with last week, and that was this. That yes, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, but what we saw was there's a kinsman redeemer closer. And all of us went, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the way the story goes. Boaz and Ruth are supposed to get together. They're supposed to live happily ever after with a, you know, a house and a white picket fence and 2.5 kids. This is not the way the story's supposed to go. So let's see what happens this week. You guys ready? You want to get in the text? Okay. Verses one through four, verses one through four. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, it just so happened, right? And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and after I, uh, and after I come. Uh, and he said, I will redeem it. Okay, um, so the system that God had set up for widows, God loves widows, God loves orphans, he loves children, and the system that God had set up to love and serve widows is if their husband dies, the relative of the late husband is responsible for taking care of that widow, and it was often by way of marrying them. So the, the, 
relative of the late husband would marry that widow. Um, they would give them a son so that their name would be perpetuated, so that they, wouldn't, they would be provided for, they'd have food, shelter, all that stuff. But it's supposed to be the closest relative. The problem here is there's actually one relative closer than Boaz, but Boaz loves Ruth and he wants to marry her. So uh, here we are. And so he goes to the city gate, okay? So what happened, if you remember last week, she, she goes in the middle of the night. That, I, I'm proposing that you propose. He does. And then first thing in the morning, where's he at? I mean, he, he, he wants to marry this gal. He gets right to work. Um, and, and he goes, and what, what he's going to do is he's going to tackle the problem. Listen, with every great love story, there, there's always an obstacle, okay? With every great love story, there's always um, an obstacle. And at this point, I feel Boaz's pain, Okay? So, uh, my wife and I dated all throughout high school. Uh, then, sadly, we broke up. Everyone, aw. Sadly, we broke up. Um, then she moved away and went off to school. Um, I went into the workforce, kind of went away to school, did some other really dumb stuff. Uh, then I came back. Uh, the Lord, you know, got a hold of my heart, and I was like, you know what? I'm, I, I want to marry Chelsea with my whole heart. Here were the obstacles. Um, one, she had a boyfriend. Uh, two, she hated my guts. Uh, three, and so did her family. Um, so there were some obstacles there that had to be overcome. But you see, with every great love story, there's always obstacles that, that have to be overcome. And it is the same way with the greatest love story that there is, which is Jesus' love for us. Jesus comes and he has to overcome the greatest obstacle, which is God's justice. You see, we're sinners. Like, you're, you're a sinner. You know that, right? I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And because God is just, he's not just gonna let your sin go. God is not the God who winks at your sin. Oh, it's okay, no big deal, buddy. You know, it's uh, whatever. That, that's not the type of God he is. He is a just God and he gets angry with sin and he gets wrathful at sin. Yes, God is loving, but God is also full of wrath. This is what the Bible teaches. It's both. It's not just, he's not just the mean God and he's not just the loving God. He's actually both. He, he is loving and wrathful. And so what Jesus does is he comes, and because God is just, God demands death for sin. And so Jesus dies on the cross so that you don't have to. That, that's the greatest love story ever told, that Jesus Christ came and he died in your place for your sins, and that through faith in him, you can be saved from the wrath of God. That, that's the greatest love story that there ever is. And Jesus overcomes the greatest obstacle to save you so that he can love you, so that he can bring you into his family. Boaz goes early to the gate to take care of this obstacle. He sees the guy, the guy comes walking by and he says, turn aside, friend. It's very interesting in the Hebrew, this is a rhyming phrase that they would use and it actually means uh, Mr. So-and-so. Like that, that's how we would translate. It means Mr. So-and-so or hey, what's his face? You know, dudes would say, hey, chief, bro, pal, buddy. You know, when you don't know somebody's name, you're like, hey, bro, what's up, man? Um, so, so he calls him Mr. So-and-so or Mr. What's-His-Face. Hey, Mr. What's-His-Face, turn aside here. I, I got something I want to say to you. Now, it's very interesting. These guys are family members, so it, it's, I believe he actually knows the guy's name, but the author intentionally leaves it out, and I want to come back to that. Let's just leave that there for right now. So what he does is he gathers 10 men of the elders. He is not trying to do any type of backroom deal. He's not trying to fly under the radar. Boaz is a godly man, a man of character, a man of God, and he comes out in the city square where um, business is conducted. That's where they used to do business. Um, and again, he, he's not trying to do anything 
under the radar, he gathers 10 elders, okay? You, you guys be my witnesses. I want, we're, we need to do some business, and we need some witnesses that are gonna, uh, you know, verify that this business is done correctly. So would you guys sit down? They, sure, they, they sit down. I love that. He, he says, hey, friend, turn aside, and the friend turns aside. Hey, 10 elders, turn aside, and they come too. Boaz is a guy who gets things done, and he's respected by other men. So when he says, I need to do some business, would you come? They say, yeah, sure, because he's a respectable man. So, the 10 elders come, and here's what he says. Naomi is selling a parcel of her land. Now, apparently, when Elimelech had died, Naomi um, assumed the rights of that land. But here's the problem. Naomi is broke. She, she doesn't have any money. So that means she can't buy seed to fertilize the land to grow crops, nor can she, on her own accord, work it. She, she doesn't have the means like Boaz has. He has means, and he can buy the seed and buy the workers, and that, that's big, bad Boaz, but here's poor Naomi. So what she wants to do is to sell the field so that the money or the revenue that's gained off of that, she can live off of. That, that's how this system is, is going to work. So for Mr. What's-His-Face, this is a great deal. Okay, this is a great deal. Here's the reason. What's been happening in the land for 10 years previously? You guys remember? Famine. There's been a famine in the land for 10 years. Now, all of a sudden, there was a great harvest. So, is real estate good right now or bad? It's great. Real estate is great. And so, this is a great deal for Mr. What's-His-Face. You know, uh, sure, he wants to buy the land. Hey, Mr. What's-His-Face, would you like to buy the land? Absolutely. I mean, real estate's really good right now. Not to mention, there's 10 elders of the town sitting there, and he knows, Mr. What's-His-Face knows, when he buys this land, the money is going to go help a widow. Huh, now he looks really fancy, huh? Not to mention, when he acquires that land, his sons get that land, um, and it gets passed down in his family lineage. So this is a really good deal for Mr. What's-His-Face, okay? So now, a lot of us are thinking, why would Boaz do this? <laughs> if he loves Ruth and wants to marry her, why is he offering such a great deal to Mr. What's-His-Face? Okay, now, here's another question that I want to ask. Where's Mr. What's-His-Face been this whole time? They've been in town for a month maybe six weeks. You remember they came at the beginning of the harvest. They stayed all throughout the harvest, which would have lasted a week or six months. Who has been taking care of Naomi and Ruth? Boaz, not Mr. What's-His-Face. What's he been doing? Where's he been at? Again, God's law was set up for the nearest, closest redeemer to care for these women, but he has abdicated his responsibility. He, he has shirked his job. He's not done what he is supposed to do. And listen, men, this is so typical of America. This is so typical of what's happening in our world today. 40% of children in America will go to bed tonight without a father in their home. This is God's system. God's design is for men to be responsible men who take care of their families, who love their families, who serve their families, who lead the church and lead the family. This is God's design from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created Adam, and he was the worker, he was the leader, he was the provider. He created Eve to be the helper. That This is how we are designed. Men are to lead. They're to be the leaders of the church, leaders of the home, and women are to be the helpers. So men are actually designed with a need that we need a helper, and women are designed to need a leader and a provider and a protector. This is God's design, and when things don't go according to God's design, it goes bad. So for the men in the room, when you shirk your responsibility, 
when you don't do what God has called you to do, it always goes bad for women and children. Men, when you don't do what God designed you to do, it always goes bad for women and children. We we see that all across the United States. We see that all around the world. Men either abdicating their responsibility or abusing their responsibility and women and children suffering at the hands of men. This is what we see in our world. As men who love Jesus, as godly men, we've got to be manly men, godly men who read our Bibles, who earn a paycheck and and support our families and support our children. We've got to be godly men who read the Bible and teach it to our wives and teach it to our children and protect them and love them and serve them. And a man's job is to set his family up for the kingdom success. Um, But Mr. What's-His-Face does not do that. Um, He abdicates his responsibility, and what happens is Boaz steps in and does the job that he was required to do. And so for so many men, there are other men who have to come in and pick up your slack. I want to say this about our kids' ministry, and I want to say this about our Sunday morning service, okay? Men, kids' ministry is a tool. It's not the whole plan. Here's what I mean. Kids ministry, our gospel kids ministry, is a tool for you um, to help set up your kids to love Jesus and serve Jesus. It's a tool in the toolbox. It's not the whole plan. Meaning, as godly men, we don't get to say, well, I I sent them to kids ministry. They taught them about Jesus. I guess I don't have to. No, 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 no. Gospel kids ministry is a tool. It's not the whole plan. In the same way, men, for your wives, the Sunday sermon, you you can't say, well, I mean, she went to the sermon. She she listened to you yell for an hour. She's got to know something about Jesus. That's a tool, not the whole plan. Men, do you have a comprehensive plan for your family um, to, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus? This is what type of men we, we need be to, to model Christ, to model Boaz as he models Christ. So he makes the offer, um, would, you, would you like to buy the land? And this guy says, Mr. What's-His-Face says, I will redeem it. And all of us scream, no, 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 that's not how the story goes. He says, no, I can't afford it. And then Boaz says, well, good, I get to marry Ruth. And then we all party, right? That's what we want to see happen. But he says, hey, uh, you know, we're supposed to redeem this land. Would you like to redeem it? If you don't redeem it, I'll redeem it. But it's got to get done. What say you? And he goes, yeah, I'll redeem it. And, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. That's, that's, not, that's not how the story goes, right? Let's, let's, keep, let's keep reading. Verse five, then Boaz said, aha, Boaz has a plan. Big bad brother Boaz is not gonna leave us out in the cold. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of my redemption for yourself, I cannot redeem it. Aha, Boaz. (laughs) Crafty, shrewd Boaz pulls the righteous bait and switch maneuver. Okay? He offers him the field, right? Okay, so he gathers the elders around. 
hey, don't you want to be the redeemer and buy the field, right, Mr. What's-His-Face? And he goes, oh, yes, I would like to buy the field. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, but, okay, so now, now he's doing the, you know, that's the bait. Now he's doing the switch, okay? But remember now, when you buy the field, here's also what you get. Um, you got to marry the Moabite. And that means there's going to be a wedding. You know, those can be expensive, right? With the dress and the hair and the cake and all the stuff, you know, you got to do the party and the deal. That's very expensive, right, Mr. What's-His-Face? Oh, also, you guys have to have a kid together so that you perpetuate the name of the dead so that, um, you know, his family line doesn't die out. You know, expensive kids can be with the milk and the diapers and the formula and the crying all the time, and it's terrible. You don't want to do that, do you, Mr. What's-His-Face? Oh, and lastly, just to put the stinger in, um, also, if you do this and you guys do have a child, this land doesn't actually go to you. It goes to Ruth's son to perpetuate their name, not to perpetuate your name. So, Mr. What's-His-Face, you're going to spend a lot of time, energy, effort, money, and you're going to get nothing in return. How's that deal sound? (laughs) Okay, this just went from real estate dream to real estate nightmare, right? So, do you see what Boaz did there? He's very shrewd. He doesn't lie, um, but he uses the timing of his truth-telling to his advantage, Okay? He's very crafty. He's very shrewd. Um, and again, he, he has set this guy up and said, okay, w- would you like the land? You like the land? You like the land? And now here's this. You know? um, and, and so what the guy does, well, no, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't redeem it. I can't redeem it. Okay? Now, there are lots of speculations why um, he can't redeem it or why he doesn't want to. Maybe he doesn't want to marry a Moabite. Okay? That, that's a very real possibility. Uh, there, he's a Jew. She's a Moabite. They don't like each other. Um, maybe he doesn't want to marry a Moabite. Um, or maybe he thinks she's bad luck. You know, I mean, her husband died. You know, her father-in-law died. Maybe anybody who marries this gal, they just end up dead. Maybe she's bad luck. Um, or m- maybe he already has a wife. See, a lot of people, when they look at the Old Testament, they're like, oh, you know, everybody married lots of wives and polygamy was awesome. Well, not really. If you really read the Old Testament, um, every time somebody had a lots of wives, it just goes bad for them. So in the Old Testament, um, polygamy is not necessarily smiled upon, so maybe he already has a wife. Here's why I think that he doesn't want to marry her. I think that he only wanted the land deal if it was going to benefit him. Um, I, I think that this is selfish. I think that this guy is abdicating his responsibility and is not doing what God has told him to do, and here's my evidence. Look at his reasoning. He says, I cannot redeem it lest I impair my inheritance. Again, God had set up the system for Mr. What's-His-Face to care for these two women. That was God's plan. That was God's design. But what does he do? No, I don't want to impair my inheritance. Meaning, I'm not willing to serve God. I'm not willing to do what God has called me to do because it's too costly. I'm not willing to serve God because it's going to be too painful. And listen, that's exactly why I believe the author leaves him nameless. He says, I I don't want to impair my inheritance, meaning I want to make sure that my name goes throughout the ages. And the author doesn't name him. Instead, who's named? Boaz. Boaz gets included in that long lineage, and Boaz, the son of so-and-so and so-and-so, not Mr. What's-His-Face, So here's what I want you to see from this text. In the kingdom of God, the key to leaving a lasting legacy is selfless sacrifice for the kingdom of God. 
In the kingdom of God, this is how the kingdom of God operates. If you want to leave a lasting legacy, if, if you want your life to matter, if you want to, be, if you want to live a, a life of purpose, here's how you do that. You live a life of selfless sacrifice for the kingdom of God. That's how you leave a lasting legacy. That's how you don't end up like Mr. What's-His-Face. But the key to being forgotten is self-service. You see, Jesus had nothing to gain by coming and dying for us. There's a silly, silly myth that God was alone. He was lonely. He was very sad, right? Very sad, very alone, listening to very sad music, wearing lots of black. And then he got this great idea, I'll create people and they'll love me. Well, how did that plan work for him? We sinned and rebelled. Okay, okay. So God didn't create people because he was lonely. He in and of himself, him in the Trinitarian Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they had eternal communion with each other. They, they were awesome together. They didn't need us. Jesus had nothing to gain by coming here, but he came as a humble servant, as a selfless servant and laying his life down. And, and that's why we praise his name. So in the kingdom of God, the, the key to having a life that really means something, a life of worth, a life of purpose, is selfless sacrifice for the kingdom of God. If, if you want a life that's gonna be meaningless, purposeless, and amounts to nothing, live for you. Live for you. Live for your comfort, live for your pleasure, live for your glory, try to get the biggest house you can get, try to get the biggest car you can get, try to make everybody like you and be the fun guy at the party. That's how to live a meaningless life. Um, so Boaz is remembered. Mr. What's-His-Face is never, never mentioned again. Here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. What if you never got recognition, respect, title, adoration, imitation, or praise for the service you performed for God's kingdom? Ouch. Let me ask it again. What if you never got recognition, respect, title, adoration, imitation, or praise for the service you performed for God's kingdom? Would you still do it? Would you lay your life down for the kingdom of God? Would you serve God if no one ever came and patted you on the back and said, good job, bro. We're so proud of you. That was awesome. We couldn't make it without you. Real quiet in here. So the call to every believer everywhere is self-sacrifice, knowing that we have already received the greatest treasure and have access to the greatest joy. Why do we serve? How can we selflessly serve the kingdom of God? How can we turn our whole life over to loving Jesus, serving God? Because we've already received the greatest treasure, which is Jesus. Like, we don't need somebody to pat us on the back and tell us how awesome we are because that's not the way or the source of our greatest joy. The source of our greatest joy is Jesus himself. So, so we don't need somebody to say, oh, man, I, I saw you vacuuming the lobby before the service, and that was so great. Or, man, I know the band, man. You guys, you show up early, you leave late. You guys are always, you don't need somebody. Listen, it's awesome when people do that, and you should do that, but we've got to see and know that the source of our greatest joy, the source of our greatest fulfillment is Jesus himself, and we already have that treasure. We already have him. 
So it's not about the pat on the back. It's not about the acclamation. It's, it's not about the praise that you receive from man. It's about the treasure that has been entrusted to you, which is Jesus himself. So, moving along, verses 7 through 10. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning uh, redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Pause for a second. This is kind of saying, um, it, it's a, this is a land deal. So he's, he's given him his shoe. It's kind of weird. Here's my shoe. This says that I can't walk on that land as an owner. Okay, that, that's kind of the picture that they're trying to do. So I guess businessmen in this time only had one shoe. So when, or mismatched shoes. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Jackpot. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. This is a celebration. This is awesome. This is the wedding day, okay? Um, we're assuming, some commentators lean this way, some don't, but we're assuming that this is a big deal. They're at the city gate. Um, we're assuming probably Naomi came along to see what was going to happen. Ruth's probably there, and, and this was kind of the bridal wedding announcement. Maybe, uh, this is awesome. This is a big celebration. This is actually the answer to the prayer in chapter one. I'll just read it to you. Chapter one, verse nine. Here's the prayer that Naomi prays. The Lord grant you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. That's chapter one. Now we're in chapter four, and God answered that prayer. Now, it, it, there was a long road in between. They're, they're there in the land of Moab, and Elimelech has died, Malon's died, Kilion's died. They have to travel 50 miles to get back to the land of Bethlehem, and they're poor, and they're just eking out their existence, going and reaping in the field and barely making it by, and then all of a sudden, boom, Boaz, he steps in and marries her. There was a long road to get there from chapter one when they actually prayed the prayer till chapter four when the prayer is answered. Here's what I want to say to you. No matter where you are in your story, hold judgment on God. No matter where you are in your story, listen, when we get in the midst of pain, when we get in the midst of suffering, it creates tunnel vision for us. And we can only see what's terrible. We can only see the bad. We can only see that this is awful. I don't like this. What are you doing, God? What are you thinking? I can't believe you're allowing this to happen to me. Anybody else? Am I alone on that one? When things like that happen in our life, when difficult circumstances come, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, God, what are you thinking? Like, what's your problem? But no matter where you are in your story, you, you don't know what's around the bend. You don't know what God has in store. You don't know what God has waiting for you. So the question is how, okay? How do I not judge God when my story is not going the way I planned? How does Ruth make it through, right? How, how do you not judge God when your story is just not going the way you planned? Okay, is, that, is that you this morning? Is your story, is your life just not going the way you planned? You, you had a really different trajectory for your life and it's just not, it's not going that way. 
The question to you is, how do you not get angry and bitter with God? How do you not judge God when your story is not going your way? Okay, because, listen, worry about how your story is gonna turn out is actually a judgment on God. You're worrying because you don't think he's got it figured out. So, so you're judging him and saying, you don't know what you're doing. That, that's actually what worry is. Fear, if you're fearful about the future, I don't know what's gonna happen, it's all gonna go terrible, you know, you know. Fear is actually a judgment on God because you're saying you don't have it covered. So worry, fear, all of those things, if that's you, if you're a person who's constantly worrying about the future, constantly worrying about my story isn't. So how do we, how do we not do, okay, is that an easy thing to do? In the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of strife, in the midst of your life to not worry? Is that easy? No, it's hard. It's hard to not worry. It's hard to not be fearful. So to bring this sermon full circle to week one, Number one, you need to acknowledge your position. Acknowledge your position. <laughs> Meaning, who are you to question God's plan? He's smarter, he's bigger, he's better, um, he, he's got it under control, he knows what he's doing, he's the God that spoke the entire universe into existence, um, he sees everything from beginning to end, he knows it all, he's done it, he's God, right? Acknowledge your position. Who are you to, to question his plan? In the midst of your life blowing up, go, he knows what he's doing. This is terrible, but he knows what he's doing. This is what happened to Job when Job questions God, and he, and he says, um, God, isn't, isn't iniquity for the unrighteous? Meaning, isn't bad things supposed to happen to bad people? Why is this happening to me? And God speaks to Job and says, Gird your loins. I have a question for you. Read it. It's there. I didn't make that up. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when, when I closed in the seashores? D does lightning ask you where it should strike? H have you seen the silos stacked with snow and hail that I have kept for times of trouble? Are, are you God? That's what he asks Job. And so for us, as we shake our fist at heaven and say, God, what are you thinking? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? We need to stop and pause and acknowledge our position. You're God, I'm not. Number two, acknowledge his reputation. In times where the, the, the plane has crashed into the side of the mountain, the wheels have fallen off, um, it, it seems like Life couldn't get any more painful. Acknowledge God's reputation. Here's this book. It's a really great book. I think you should read it. Um, time and time again, family after family, person after person, story after story, to where there is great pain and suffering, and God always brings about joy. God always brings about happiness. God always brings everything to a close. And listen, even if your pain and trial and suffering kills you, guess what? You'll get to be with Jesus. <laughs> Acknowledge his reputation. Th think, of, think about Noah. Think about Abraham. Think about these guys that God was just faithful to them. Yeah, things were difficult, but in the end, he, he proves himself to be faithful every single time. So, this is great. They're married. It's awesome. 
Let's keep reading, verses 11 through 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is in your house like Rachel and like Leah together who built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamor bore to Judah because their offspring that the Lord will give you from this young woman. This book is absolutely filled with prayers. In chapter one, verse eight, Naomi prays for Ruth and Orpah. In chapter two, verse four, Boaz prays for his employees. In chapter two, verse 12, Boaz prays for Ruth. In chapter two, verse 20, Naomi prays to the Lord and thanks the Lord for Boaz. In chapter three, verse 10, Boaz prays for Ruth. Now in chapter four, verse 11, the townspeople uh, pray for the newlyweds. They pray that she be like Rachel. Oh, you guys remember Rachel, right? The, the one who was barren and God opened her womb. And like the house of Perez. You know the house of Perez that had tons and tons and lots and lots of kids. That, that's what they're praying um, for this couple. So do they get the happy ending? I, I, is this all gonna turn out okay? Here's the problem. She was in the land of Moab, married to Malon for how long? Remember? 10 years and no kids. So are they going to get married and have children? That, that's the prayer that they prayed. Is God gonna be faithful and come through and, and open her womb so that she can conceive? Verse 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son will be born to Naomi. They named him Obed, uh, which means worshiper, Name him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Like, this is the big conclusion. This is the climax of the story that everything was going terrible, but God was faithful all the way through. And when we look at this genealogy, some of us are going, that's a bunch of funny names, okay? But, but you gotta see, who comes in the line of David? Yeah, who comes in the line of David? Jesus. Listen, back then, you, you gotta understand, they had no idea when they're stranded in the land of Moab, everyone's dead. They're a bunch of widows, destitute, no money, no food, no hope. God had a plan. And for those of you who are here this morning and you feel like you have no hope, God has a plan. So at every setback, at every setback, God turned it into hope. Number one, Naomi's life caved in in Moab God shows up in Bethlehem. Number two, she is stripped of everything, her husband and her sons, but God gives her Naomi. Number three, Naomi is grumbling and God is preparing Boaz. Number four, there is a kinsman redeemer who is closer, but it's okay. Boaz still gets to marry Ruth. Number five, Ruth is barren and the Lord gives her a son. God is working in every setback to create a stepping stone to joy. 
every setback in this story, every problem, every, every wall we come up against, God is just on the other side and he's preparing that setback, he's preparing that problem, he's preparing that issue to be a stepping stone to joy. It's how God works. His purposes are way beyond anything that any of us could have ever imagined. Oftentimes, the way God likes to work and the what that he works out is way better. <laughs> okay? Meaning, the way that God's going to work it. A lot of times, when we're in issues, when we're in problems, when, when our life is, is really, really difficult, the way that we would like to work it out is, let's solve the problem as fast and as easily as we can. Meaning, we always take the comfortable and easy route out, right? That, that's how we would solve the problem. But where there is no strife, there is no maturity. I should have got an amen there for somebody. Where there is no strife, there is no maturity. Have you ever met somebody who always gets everything they want all the time? They're little brats, aren't they? So a way that God works, the way God works, is always way better than the way we work. And the what that he's working out is always bigger than anything we could have ever dreamed. Back in Moab, if you would have said, hey, Ruth, uh, you know, would you like to be in the line and lineage of the Savior of the entire world? She would have been like, what? She, she, she had no idea. But here's what Ruth does. Ruth is faithfully obedient all the way through trials and tribulation. I want you to think about cosmically how small Ruth's decision to stand beside Naomi, be obedient to God, and follow her to this land. I want you to think cosmically how small Boaz's decision to step in and be the kinsman redeemer is, okay? So one dude decides, hey, I'm gonna obey God and I'm gonna marry this gal, okay? Compare that decision to the United States entering into World War II. Which decision seems bigger? But simple obedience connected to a cosmic plan is never inconsequential. <laughs> okay, simple obedience. You just simply obeying God in the very small things in your life. Again, Naomi wouldn't have seen Ruth's decision as a big decision. Boaz, cosmically speaking, I mean, wouldn't have seen it as a big, giant decision that he made. He said, I'm just obeying God. This is just what God told me to do, um, and I'm just going to marry this girl, right? He just simply obeys. But it was connected to God's cosmic plan, which made it a really, 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 really important decision that he made. But he didn't know that. So our small obedience, our simple, small, everyday life, just deciding to follow God, just deciding to go after him is not inconsequential. It's not insignificant. It's actually cosmic because it's connected to a cosmic plan. Isn't that awesome? That, that our day-to-day -day obedience, listen, that you being faithful to attend on Sunday mornings is actually cosmic. That you being faithful to give that you being faithful to show up to a community group, that you being faithful to, to serve the city, that you being faithful to love somebody, that, to lay a hand on them and pray for them, that is so not insignificant. It, it's, it's actually cosmic because it's connected to a cosmic plan. And here we see this cosmic plan unfold that these very ordinary people, Ruth and Boaz, I mean just ordinary people, obeying God, connected to a cosmic plan 
which in the end brings about the Savior of the entire world. Listen, your tomorrow, your Monday morning is monumental when it is connected to the king's work. You're going to work, um, you're going to school or going to class. Listen, stay at home moms, you, you staying at home with your children, okay? When it is connected to the king and his plan and his purposes, it is so significant, it's so significant. And that's the beauty of being a servant of God and a lover of God, that what we do day to day, though it may seem small to us, is actually huge because it's connected to God's plan. So I want to close this book and draw it down to the heart of it. I want to draw it down to the purpose of it. I want to get down to what this book is really, really, really about. Who is that? That's right, every line, every word from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament are Bible's banner that it's waving, the song that it's singing, the flag that it's waving is Jesus Christ. So here's what happens. Jesus Christ comes, he lives the life that we should have lived, he dies the death that we should have died, he then resurrects three days later and he shows up to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking down this road and here's what it says, Luke 24 Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus comes and he dies and he resurrects. And once he's resurrected, he shows up to his disciples and leads them through a little Bible study as they're walking down the road. And he starts in the Old Testament. He starts, okay, let's go Genesis. You guys read Genesis, right? So let me walk you through Genesis and tell you how all of that is about me. That's what Jesus says to them. And then he goes to the next book and then the next book and then the book after that. And then he comes to Judges. And right after Judges, he steps into the book of Ruth, and I would have loved to have been there to hear Jesus unpack Ruth and tell his disciples how the book of Ruth was exactly about him. I imagine that he might have said something like this. Number one, Boaz was a kinsman, and I became a kinsman of yours. I, the God of the universe, the, the God who spoke everything into being, and by my very word, right now, I'm holding everything together. I stepped out of heaven where I was loved, served, and worshiped. I stepped out of that place to be a servant. I became a lowly servant. I became a first century Galilean peasant. I came here to serve you. I put on flesh so that I could be your kinsman redeemer. Then I went to the cross so that I could adopt you into my family, making you a part of my family, becoming your kinsman redeemer. Number two, Jesus might have said, Boaz was able and willing to redeem Ruth. I alone was able and willing to redeem you. So Boaz Boaz was able and willing to do this, but me being Jesus, I came and lived a perfect life. That's what God demands of you, a perfect life. The problem is nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. So Jesus comes and lives a perfect life so that his sacrifice is perfect, so that his righteousness is imputed onto us. He's the only one that was able to save. He's the only one that's able to save. Not Buddha, not Gandhi, not Muhammad. They're not able to save. Jesus is the only one able to save. Not only was Jesus able to save, he was also willing to save because he says in John, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down Willingly, I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus also might have said something like this, Boaz paid the price for redemption, but I paid the ultimate 
price. They beat his body. They plucked out his beard. They took a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and mushed it down into his flesh and blood ran down his face. They took spikes and drove it through his hands and his feet and they laid him on that old rugged cross and they drove those spikes through his hands and through his feet and he was there hanging on the cross in the sun and they took a spear and they stabbed it in his side and pronounced him dead. That was the cost of your redemption. That was the cost of your salvation. Jesus also might have said something like this, Boaz's self-sacrifice led to the salvation of a nation. My self-sacrifice was the salvation of a nation. I came for my people. The good shepherd collects his sheep. They know my voice. The sheep follow the shepherd. He came for his people. That's what Jesus came to do. And lastly, the book of Ruth ends with a wedding celebration. And when I return, there will be a great marriage supper of the Lamb. This is Jesus. This is our great God and Savior. When you leave today, I don't want you to say, man, what a cool band or, or what a great sermon or what an awesome series. I want you to say, what a great Savior. That's what I want your hearts to sing today. So I'll close with this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and may the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this great story. We thank you for this great book. We thank you for a mighty, godly man like Boaz. May the men of this church raise up to be godly, strong men who read their Bibles, who love Jesus, who protect women and children. Father, I pray that the women of this church would imitate Ruth as she was a godly woman who brought value to everything around her, who was dedicated, who was humble, who loved you. I pray for generations of godly women uh, to come out of this church. God, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to come and die in our place for our sins, being like a foreshadow of Boaz, being the mighty redeemer, Jesus Christ, who came to die, um, who ultimately was our kinsman and redeemer that invited us into his family that me a sinner I have no business in the family of God but because of Jesus sacrifice I'm, I'm invited into that family God we're thankful for that today we know that we can have joy we can have peace we can have hope because Jesus has come we're so thankful for all that you've done we're thankful for the doors that you've opened for this church uh, we're thankful for the growth that we've seen spiritually we're thankful for the growth that we've seen numerically. We want to see more. We want to see more people love Jesus. We want to see more people saved. We want to see more lives changed. So, Father, would you do that? Would you grant that to us? God, you're mighty to save. God, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit right now to sweep through this place and for the people who have come today feeling hopeless. Father, I pray that they would leave with hope. Their hope would be in Jesus and the cross. Their hope wouldn't be in wisdom of men or, or any smart, quirky thing I said, um, but their hope would be in Jesus. Father, I pray for um, the men today. I pray for the women today. I pray that we would raise up families who, 
who are dedicated to God, who love and serve God. I pray for the children of our church. God, would you make them lovers of Jesus early, early, early on in their lives? Would you make them followers of Jesus early, early in their lives? Father, I pray for those who may not know you today. They, they don't know if they're a Christian or not. They, 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 they've come here, they're just investigating, seeing what this thing's all about. God, would you just consume their heart with the beauty of Jesus? Would you change lives today? You're the only God who can do that. I can't do it, the band can't do it, this building can't do it, but you can change lives, you can change hearts, you're, you're that God. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.